Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this morning we'll be looking at verse 23 and 24. And the title, the theme of this passage is uh, really is praising our God who sanctifies us. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 23 and 24. And as I read the uh, passage for you, I remind you again that this is the inspired Word of God. What a blessing it is. And we pray that we will listen with ears that are given towards reverence and a desire to seek grace from God to obey and be transformed by it. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who called you. And He also will bring it to pass. May God bless the reading of His Word. Well, when we hear the Scriptures and we hear all the uh, commands and exhortations that we're to live by, I think uh, if you're like me, sometimes you can get a bit overwhelmed at how far we fall short. If we're to imitate Christ, if we're to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, if we're to pursue after sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, if we're to keep all the commands given to Christians, how oftentimes we look at our life, we look at our heart, we examine our minds, our thoughts, our actions, our words, and we can be overwhelmed by just how inadequate we oftentimes are. When confronted with the high demands of Scripture, we can quickly realize our inability and our failure to measure up. Our heart's desire is to be godly. Our heart's desire is to please God in all that we do. And yet those words sometimes come out of our mouth and that attitude of heart is sometimes defiling among us. And though we want to live this kind of a holy lifestyle, oftentimes we realize we're nowhere close. Sometimes we think within ourselves, Lord Jesus, I am so unlike You. Because You're holy and I struggle in my sanctification. With all the exhortations that Paul has given the church of Thessalonians, Thessalonica, that they are to love one another, that they are to be patient with everyone, build up one another, live in peace with one another, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. You don't think that sometimes in their own heart they thought that's impossible. Rejoice always. Give thanks for everything. And yet oftentimes I'm living in, in misery and frustration and I'm not thankful. And I'm not rejoicing. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. 
And it's at that time that we begin to realize that we aren't as holy as we should be. And then on top of all those exhortations to the church of Thessalonica, even in the areas where they were doing well, what did Paul say to them? Excel still more. You're still not there. And so what we have with this concluding exhortation or encouragement, prayer really, from this letter is to direct our thoughts to the One who sanctifies. To realize that in and of ourselves, we are not adequate. In and of ourselves, we are not able to meet the commands of God's Word. Remember in Jesus' ministry when He was out in the multitudes and there was a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children on top of that. And the Lord Jesus had been teaching and ministering to them. And the disciples said, Lord, it's late in the day. These people are hungry. Send them all home so they can get something to eat. And Jesus shocked them by saying, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. What? Feed this great multitude? You've got to be kidding. And the disciples began to throw up their, their desperate attempts to, to convince Christ that was a ridiculous idea. I mean, even if you had 200 denarii to buy bread, that wouldn't be sufficient enough to feed this great multitude. And besides, we've checked and done inventory and we've got five loaves and two fish. So how in the world are we ever going to obey Your command to feed them? But Jesus took the bread and He took the fish and He multiplied it miraculously. And then He gave it to the disciples and then they fed the people. They obeyed by divine, miraculous power. They did what Jesus wanted them to do. Not because they were able, but because Christ enabled them by His power to do that. This is, I think, a lesson that all Christians need to be reminded of. And the church at Thessalonica needed to be reminded of it as well. Paul had dumped on them all of these exhortations, all these commands. In some areas they were doing okay, but they needed to do better. And oftentimes I think when we come in contact with what is expected of us as born-again children of God, we realize within our own hearts that desperate sense of our own weakness, our own inadequacies, and our own failures. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that echoes within our hearts at times. Or with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of flesh? And we sometimes struggle because our eyes are on our failure, our inadequacies, our inability to, to reflect the moral holiness of our Savior like we're called to. And oftentimes we can become discouraged. We can become downcast. And we need to be encouraged. And so that's what Paul, I think, is doing in this passage. He's encouraging the saints 
knowing that they struggle with some of their failures and inadequacies and insufficiencies, and He's telling them now, look, fix your gaze on the One, using Alan's uh, earlier metaphor, but fix your gaze on the One who can sanctify you. Who can give the power and the grace for you to live a life that pleases the Lord. You won't find that in yourself, but you'll find it in God. So beginning in verse 23, again, the Apostle Paul tells them the author of their sanctification. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. So he now begins to set before them the one who will sanctify them. And it's not them. It's ultimately God Himself. Now notice how he's basically offering this up as a prayer close to a benediction. But Paul is praying, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. Paul knows that the grace to be sanctified and grow in sanctification comes from God. He specifically refers to Him as the God of peace. And this is a very uh, rich description of God as a God of peace. There's many types of peace in Scripture. There's a peace with God, which is justification. There's a peace of God, which is that inner peace we experience in Philippians 4. And Paul has already exhorted this church to live in peace with one another. But the point that he's making is that all peace ultimately comes from God. God is the God of peace. And if you need peace, you can get it from God. Now the Jewish uh, greetings, as you no doubt are very familiar with, was with the word shalom, which can be translated peace. But it's a richer idea of peace when they would greet one another with the word shalom it has the idea of may health and prosperity be upon you peace in a very general broad sense health prosperity may peace be on your life or may god bless you with well-being in every area of your life and so that all of that peace ultimately comes from one source and that is the god of peace it comes from god himself Now it's interesting how he also emphasizes may the God of peace Himself. And this is putting emphasis on the fact that it is God and God alone who not only is the author of peace, but is the one who can sanctify us. May God Himself, may God personally intervene and bring His peace and sanctify you through that. So he's putting all the emphasis upon God and His ministry of sanctifying them. Now obviously that doesn't mean that we're passive in sanctification. Far from it. But the ultimate grace and power still comes from the Lord. Now notice what he goes on to say, may this God of peace sanctify you. And sanctify you entirely. So what does sanctify mean? Well, again, this word has different meanings in, in Scripture. We can speak of a, a positional sanctification. That is, that we are sanctified by virtue of the fact that God has set us apart. It's a one-time event 
When you're saved, when you're justified by faith, God sets you apart as a permanent position that we have spiritually in Christ. We've been permanently set apart for God. Our position has moved from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. We were in Adam, now we're in Christ. We were under the domain of darkness, now we're in the kingdom of Christ. So so we are positionally set apart eternally for God. That's something that does not change. It's permanent. It's irrevocable. That's our positional sanctification in Christ. And when you're reading the New Testament, you know it's this kind of sanctification when Paul puts it in the past tense. When he describes the church and says, you have been sanctified in Christ. That's the positional sanctification that he's talking about. But there's also a practical sanctification. And that practical sanctification is partly what Paul has in mind in this verse. That God is the one who sanctifies us. And this is really a theme you find throughout Scripture. Like even in the Old Testament, in a number of verses, God says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And remember Jesus, even in John 17, prayed to the Father concerning the disciples, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Jesus knew that the Father must sanctify. So that's the emphasis. Paul is praying that the God of peace would sanctify these believers. Help them along in their Christian life. Help them to progressively become more holy and more like the Lord Jesus Christ until it meets its perfected completion when the Lord comes back. So the Apostle Paul is basically praying that God would move in a powerful way in the church, that He would sanctify them, He would make them holy. And this is where God's peace and holiness really are kind of connected. Holiness and peace really are interwoven together because the experience of the peace of God can only take place as we're pursuing sanctification in our practical walk with Christ. So the point so far Paul has been making is that you have a divine source to help you in your struggle with your inner sin, with your frustration of your lack of progress, You have a God of peace who can intervene and and bring about sanctification. If you're frustrated with your own inadequacies and your own failures, look to the God of peace. He's the one who can sanctify. Now what kind of sanctification is he really referring to? Well, notice in this passage, he says, may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame. Now if you have the ESV or the King James this morning, they move that word complete and they put it at the front of that phrase. So it probably may read in your Bible, may the whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. And you could put that word whole or complete, that's the word we're talking about in either position, But the idea is basically the same. Just trying to explain why yours may read a little differently. But what Paul is now saying is that God is the one who sanctifies. 
And he's praying that God would bring about a complete, total sanctification in our life. The first thing he says, he uses the word entirely or complete. And that has the idea that basically it's going to encompass every aspect of sanctification. May God sanctify you entirely. Every area of your life may it come under the sanctifying influences of the God of peace. And then he adds to that, and may God preserve you complete without blame. And then he adds in there, may your spirit and soul and body be included within that. So obviously the emphasis here is may every part of your being come under that sanctifying influence. Just think of it. Your spirit, your soul, your body. May all of you be gradually sanctified by the work of the God of peace. Now, this particular part of this verse has launched a lot of questions and controversy about the makeup of our human nature. Are we a dichotomist in our viewpoint or a trichotomist? And you may think, what Greek is he speaking now? But these are those words are listed in your handout. But the dichotomist believes that God created man's nature basically as having two parts. We have a physical side to us and an immaterial side. But there's just two parts. That's the dichotomy position. The trichotomy is that there's three parts. We have a body, a physical side, and then two different immaterial sides to our being. We have a soul, and then we also have a spirit. So we're actually made up of three parts. Now this verse seems to suggest that the trichotomous view is more accurate. But most people, and I would be in this camp, I would say that really the Bible teaches a dichotomy view of, of, human, uh, of human nature. There are several reasons for this. Let me just quickly uh, rattle through some of these. If you compare our verse, verse 23 with chapter 3, verse 13, which Paul has already written, they're very, very similar. You can look at the the content and some of the words are exactly the same. He's talking about that we'd be sanctified without blame in holiness before at the coming of the Lord. Very similar to chapter 5, verse 23. And yet here, Paul doesn't describe our makeup in three parts. But he just summarizes it and says, may your hearts be without blame and holiness. So whatever the soul and the spirit, he just summarizes it as your heart. So here he's combining the two into one. And this really is the way Paul normally expresses the extent of our human nature. If you look at some of these other verses I have up on the screen... In all these other verses, Paul just describes our human nature as being in two parts. A physical side and an immaterial side. So in Romans 8, he speaks of the body and the spirit. 1 Corinthians, flesh and spirit. Body and spirit. 2 Corinthians, flesh and spirit. Ephesians, flesh and mind. 
Here he says he uses mind instead of spirit. And then in Colossians, body and spirit. No other place does he say we're a body, a soul, and a spirit, as if there's three distinct parts. He's normally just speaking of two parts, body and spirit. And Paul prefers the word spirit or mind, as he says in Ephesians. So that's normally the way Paul communicates on that particular issue. And if you and uh, so I spent a, a, some time this week uh, scanning the word soul and the word spirit in the Bible, and there's a bunch of them. But if you look at them, oftentimes they seem to be interchangeable. Sometimes will be referred to as a soul, sometimes as a spirit. So that would support to me that these two words, soul and spirit, are a part of one immaterial aspect of our makeup. Uh, You can also argue that when Jesus was repeating the Shema, the great command to love God, that He was not teaching that we're made up of four parts. He He says, for example, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Well, that's four parts. But Jesus is not trying to give a scientific analysis of the makeup of our nature. He's just expanding on the immaterial part of our nature. It's a heart, it's a soul, it's a mind. But He uses all three words, but it's just one immaterial part of our makeup. And I think that's probably the best way to to understand what Paul is saying in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. When he says, may your spirit and soul and body be complete, he's throwing in both spirit and soul just to, to make it totally complete. No part of you should escape God's sanctifying influences. That's his prayer. That it's total. Every part of us comes under that sanctifying influence. If there is a distinction between soul and spirit, I might be inclined to think that the soul, whenever you run across that in the Bible, normally refers to our immaterial nature, our human nature, as the seat or the hub of our emotions, our affections, and our desires. The spirit, on the other hand, when that word is used to refer to our immaterial nature, would refer to our relationship with God. Our, our spirit is the recipient of divine influences and is the organ of divine worship. But the two words overlap. They intermingle. And those distinctions are not always there. But I think that might be one way to make a distinction between soul and spirit. It would be somewhat like, uh, you could look at me this morning and say, I'm one person but I'm a husband and I'm also a father. But I'm not two different entities. I'm a husband and there's certain aspects of that, of who I am as a husband, but I'm also a father. So I think you can take the immaterial nature and it's both a spirit and a soul. It's just emphasizing different qualities of that immaterial nature that one immaterial nature so anyway people have differing convictions on that but that's that's kind of where i'm leaning but notice what he says about the spirit and soul and body he's praying may it be preserved complete without blame 
May your body, your soul, your spirit, may your entire makeup as a human being be preserved complete without blame. So he's really wanting us to, for God to bring us into a point of spiritual perfection. Now we want to attain to it, but he's praying that ultimately God will do it. We want to attain to it in this life, let me clarify. Being preserved without blame. The word preserved means to be kept, to be guarded. It's the same word in Jude 24, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. And what Paul is praying, God, the God of peace, may he sanctify you and preserve you and guard you and keep you. And he wants it, the, the Spirit of God, God the Father, to, to do this work in our hearts so that we are preserved complete in every part, body, soul, and spirit, and we also are without blame. That is, we become faultless, without blemish, we become perfect. And this is really where Paul's heart is. Oh God, may, may you so sanctify your people in this church that they grow more godly and godly and godly until they look just like Christ. They imitate the very holiness of the Lord Jesus Himself. But see, that's not going to take place in this lifetime. But this is a gradual process. Our, our sanctification in this life will always be imperfect and it will always be partial. In extent, our sanctification will be total. God of peace, our Father, is sanctifying us in every part of our, of our makeup, but the degree of our sanctification is partial. So we'll never reach a state of where we're perfect in this life. John told his readers, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. No, we will fight against sin until the Lord comes back. We will wrestle with our sinful nature. We'll struggle with our character defects. But God's plan is to ultimately bring us into a state of complete sanctification. And again, we're not going to arrive in it in this life. And when do we, when do we attain to it? Well, He closes it at the end of verse 23 and tells us, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when we'll be made perfect. That's when our sanctification that is gradual and impartial and not perfect now will one day be made perfect when the Lord Christ comes back. So what this is teaching us is that there's no perfectionism in this life. And you can... There's some denominations that teach that. You know, the Nazarene and others believe that they can actually attain to a level of, of perfection in this life. You're never going to do it. And that's why Paul is emphasizing that this process that we're in the middle of and struggling with our sin nature now will not be complete until Christ comes back. And that should be an encouragement to us. That the God of peace is the one helping us to gradually be sanctified, but ultimately He will perfect it when Christ returns. So the idea of reaching perfection now 
is impossible. So don't be discouraged if you still wrestle with sin. It's a part of the battle of the Christian life. It's not like that Church of God lady that came up to me about three years ago. And she said with a very straight face, she said to me, I have not sinned in 40 years. And she was proud of it. Which seems like there's a contradiction there. You know, if you claim that you haven't sinned and yet your heart is full of arrogant pride, there's something, something about that. But she actually thought that she had not sinned in 40 years. And the only way someone can think that way is they, they redefine sin and they're blind to their own sinfulness. But that's where she was. But that's impossible. Perfectionism cannot be attained in this life when it comes to our walk with the Lord. Paul made it clear in Galatians 5 when he says of the believer, this is your struggle. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. That's why we struggle. We have an inner battle. Those who are born again have the Holy Spirit in us, but we still have the remnant of our sin nature, the the abiding principle of sin. And there's a battle that goes on within us. And that's why we get so frustrated with ourselves. And so Paul is saying, look, look to the God of peace. And may He sanctify you. May He continue that process now, but ultimately it will be perfected and completed at the coming of of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the last trump sounds, and in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. The living saints will be immediately translated and transformed into glory. And the dead saints who are asleep in Jesus, their bodies will be resurrected and glorified and rejoined with their glorified soul to be with the Lord forever. So look at it this way. Our sanctification now, which is impartial, is glory in the bud. But our future glory will be sanctification in the flower. It will be the fullness, the perfection of that sanctification when we're glorified in the presence of the Lord. So really, I think what Paul is praying in this prayer is, of course, we acknowledge positional sanctification that has happened to every believer once you come to faith in Christ. You're permanently set apart for God. We're all now going through practical sanctification, which is progressive, but it'll always be imperfect and impartial. But eventually we'll arrive at perfected sanctification, which we will enjoy forever and ever. So Paul has tried to encourage the church that though you're struggling with sin and you're wrestling with all of these issues in your life and you get frustrated with your own sanctification, be encouraged because the God of peace is going to sanctify you. He'll continue that work now and eventually He'll perfect it when He comes back. And the final question is, well, how do we know that God will do that? Because I still have a lot of sin. How do we know that God will do all of that sanctifying work in us? 
And that's when Paul concludes in verse 24, faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. So now he turns their attention again to God, not only as the one who called them, but also as the faithful God who will perform what He's promised. Faithful is He who calls you. Now when Paul talks about the call that we have received from God, this is not the call like you and I just calling people to come to faith in Christ. This is God, God calling. And when God calls, it comes with a supernatural, irresistible power that changes the heart and enables that spiritually dead sinner to come alive and respond to the Gospel and get saved. It's the kind of call we see with Lazarus when he died. Now, if you were living back 2,000 years ago and Lazarus was your friend and you went to his tomb and he was in that grave and he's been in there for four days and you called out to Lazarus and you said, Lazarus, come alive again. What would he do? Obviously nothing. Because our call has no power to raise the dead. And all sinners by nature are dead spiritually. Paul says that in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We need a divine, miraculous, supernatural call. And so here comes Jesus, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. And when He says, Lazarus comes forth, His words impart the very power of life that resurrected His dead body, gave Him life, and empowered Him to obey the command and get up and come out. That's the kind of power of God's call. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then you have received that call at some point in your life. It wasn't a verbal call, but there was a stirring of your heart that you came face to face with your sin and that you knew that you deserved the judgment and the wrath of God. But suddenly Christ gave you hope and you wanted to be forgiven and you believed the Gospel that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. And whoever repents and believes in Him, He promises to forgive you. And you placed your faith and trust in Christ. All of that was because God inwardly called you to Himself. In effect, figuratively, He called you by name and He spoke life into your spiritually dead soul and made it come alive and you responded in faith. This is the God who calls us. This is a God of power who is sovereign, who speaks, and the waves and the winds obey Him. Also, the unregenerate heart as it comes alive. What's interesting in verse 24 is that the word call is actually in the present tense. Faithful is He who calls you. Now, He's not referring back to just their conversion. Faithful is He who called you. But He calls you. He's talking to believers. We are still the called ones. It wasn't we were called back then. No, we're still called today. 
We're called to be separate from the world. We're, we're, we're called out to, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That calling never ends. It's still a part of our life. In fact, the church, the word church in the New Testament comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out ones. That's who we are as a body of believers. We are called out. So Paul is emphasizing that faithful is the one who calls you. In other words, if He calls you to salvation, He's going to complete your salvation. He's faithful. If He called you, He will complete the call. He'll bring you to the destiny that He has chosen you for. And this is where the word faithful is so sweet in this verse. Because faithful is God who calls you. If He called you, God is going to be faithful to you. God's faithfulness is one of those glorious perfections of God that that is so encouraging to the saints. You see, God cannot be unfaithful to you. Because for Him to be unfaithful is contrary to His very nature. That's why Paul could say, to Timothy that if we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. Faithfulness is part of His very character. And if He has called you, and though you're struggling with your sanctification and you're fighting with your sin and you're discouraged, if He called you, He is faithful to complete the salvation that He called you to. God is always faithful to His people. Sometimes the providence of God may confuse us and and discourage us with trials, but God's love and compassion is always on His people. Lamentation 3 encourages us with that when it says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So God is going to be faithful to you. How do you know He's going to perfect you? How do you know He's going to sanctify you entirely and completely? Because God said He would and He's faithful to His Word. Oftentimes we're not faithful, but God is always faithful to His people. God is faithful to His Word. He's faithful to His promises. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. And God's promises cannot fail because He's not a man that He can lie, right? And every promise that God ever made has, all, has either already come to pass or most certainly will come to pass because God's Word cannot fail. God will accomplish what He has promised. And that's how He ends the verse. Faithful is He who calls you, He also will bring it to pass. That's your confidence. That one day you will stand before God blameless, sanctified completely and entirely when we're glorified in His presence. And the confidence that we have that that will take place is because God is faithful to His Word and He will do it. He will bring it to pass. God will do it because He can do it. And because He promised to do it. And because He's always faithful to His promises.
And so Paul kind of glories in this crescendo that God will bring your sanctification to pass. God will do it. So if you're discouraged in your walk, look to God. He's got the grace, the power. He's the one who sanctifies us. You have a power and a strength far beyond your strength that you can look to for encouragement and hope in the day of struggle. Paul told the Philippian church that I'm confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's His promise. He will perfect the work that He has begun in your heart and in your life. So don't be overly discouraged with yourself. Yeah, there's a lot to be discouraged in us. But look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the God of peace. Look at His call that He promises He will perfect the work that He has begun. And it's interesting, these, this very same theme Paul has already made to the, well, later on he'll make to the church of Corinth. If you had to put the sanctification, the practical sanctification of the church at Corinth on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you put it? It was kind of low. If you've read the letter, they're struggling with all kinds of issues. And yet, this is what Paul said to them in his opening chapter. That God will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Very same things what he's saying in, to the Thessalonian church. But God is faithful. He will confirm you. you will, he will bring you to the point of blamelessness when we're glorified in His presence. And that's what He wants to leave ringing in the ears of the, of the church. That the God who called you is a God who will glorify you. He will guarantee your glory because that's His faithfulness to His Word. That's part of the golden chain of Romans 8.30. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. So if you've been called, you will enter that ultimate state of being completely and totally sanctified. It's a process now that we struggle with. It's imperfect. It's incomplete. But when Christ comes back, it will be completed and perfected and will be glorified. And that's a promise He's given to all who are called by His grace in saving faith. So this is the hope. This is our encouragement. That when our own sanctification is is a failure. We seem inadequate. We're struggling. We're imperfect. We want to please God. We want to glorify God. But there's just issues in our life that are discouraging us. Just remember what Jesus told His disciples. You give them something to eat. But Lord, we can't. And we feel that emptiness. But give to the Lord what you have. Give Him your heart. Give Him your soul, your mind. Give Him the five loaves and the two fishes. Yeah, it's inadequate. Yeah, it's imperfect. It's not sufficient. But give Him your willingness, your desire to do His will. And watch Him multiply that grace to minister to those around you through your life and ultimately gradually sanctify you to be perfected when Jesus comes back. This sovereignty of God is certainly not 
a reason or an excuse to be indifferent or lazy in the Christian life. Rather, it should motivate us. The guarantee of God's sovereignty to sanctify us and glorify should motivate us in our sanctification. And that's why Paul can say to the Philippian church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Work it out. Why? Because God is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The sovereignty of God, the grace of God, the empowering mercy of God is what enables us to work out our salvation. And so we both apply ourselves diligently to the means of grace. We seek to work it out. But our hope and encouragement is that God of peace is working within us to sanctify us. So I close with a benediction that Paul gave to the church at Ephesus which I think is a great encouragement that this is why in our sanctification all praise is ultimately going to go to God because He's the one working in and through us to sanctify us. And Paul concluded Ephesians chapter 3 when he said, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. That's the Spirit of God. That's the God of peace at work within us. And to Him be the glory in the church. We don't share that glory. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is this faithful God who promised to sanctify us that we worship and we trust in because His Word will not fail. And He's promised one day to sanctify us completely and totally in His presence forever. Let that encourage you in your daily battles. Let that give you hope. Let that encourage you to draw closer to the God of peace through Christ to get more of His strength to fight the daily battles that we all fight. And may our gaze be on Christ and His grace. Well, all of that sanctifying grace and all that glorifying grace and all that justifying grace was won for us by Jesus when He died on the cross to save us from our sins. And now it's our privilege to focus our attention upon where the fountain of all that grace comes from. And it comes from the cross of Christ where Jesus came and died for His people and sacrificed Himself for their sins that they might be saved as they put their faith and trust in Him.